When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes. I'm Sam Abul Samet from Navigant Research. I'm Rebecca Lindland from Rebecca Drives. So let's jump right into the garage. Um, Rebecca, I'm super interested in the uh, Chrysler Pacifica PHEV that you had. Yes. Um, are, are you? Did you put any gas in it over the week you've had it so far? Well, no. And in fairness, I. I never do. I well, no. <laughs> no, in fairness, I just I haven't been able to put a lot of miles on the vehicles that I've had the last few weeks. I was actually going to send a note to uh, both Drive Shop and some of the or uh, Modus One and some of the people that have been giving me cars because the last three weeks when I've been mired in this project, I just have not been driving. I haven't. Been, I mean, I go for three days and I don't look up. So I didn't put any gas in it. I did charge it a couple of times uh, as I tagged us, uh, our Wheel Bearings podcast on Twitter. Uh, it was very interesting because uh, it takes, you know, a, a good solid 12 to 13 hours. And the first night I charged it, I got 25 miles uh, and it didn't seem to want to go any higher. So I charged it again last night and they picked it up this morning, but I charged it again. And when I checked it this morning, it actually did have the full 33 miles on it. So I got into a little bit of a little bit of an Instagram commenting issue with a, a former college roommate, uh, um, classmate of mine. Uh, and he was very derogatory about the fact that it was 25 miles for a minivan. Uh, wow. but. But um, it actually is 33, and when you when you multiply 33 miles by 365 days, it gets you over 12,000 miles. It is not sufficient for a lot of families in a day-to-day environment, but it is sufficient for some. And of course, with the gas engine as the backup, you can still do the majority of your miles in EV mode and it drives really well in EV mode. So, you know, it's kind of I mean I I liked it. It, it was it was nice to be able to do that. Well, I don't understand why that's something that you would criticize it for for having quote unquote only 33 miles. Like it's better than 0 miles of <laughs> yeah. electric only and I mean, it's you know, think 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 of this thing, you know, as a grown-up version of the Chevy Volt. You know, yeah. when 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 GM launched the second generation version of the Volt, you know, they talked a lot about the 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 data they had gotten from the first generation models and they found that 
90% of the trips that Volt owners took used no gas. Yeah. Wow. And then, then because most, most of the trips that most people take on a daily basis are less than 40 miles. And, you know, if you've got 35, 40 miles of range, even 33 miles of range, most of the time you're going to be able to do your daily commuting, you're running around, you know, and especially when you think of the kind of use cases for a vehicle like the Pacifica, you know, which is typically, you know, going to be hauling a family around, you know, running errands, things like that. Most, most Pacifica owners are probably accumulating less than 33, 34 miles a day. And you, as, as you saw, you're going to be able to do the vast majority of your driving without ever using any gas. And because it's not a pure electric vehicle, you know, when the battery does run out, you just keep on going. <laughs> you right. don't, you don't, you don't have to think about it. Right. You know, when you come, when you come home or when you park it somewhere where there's, where there's a plug, you plug it in, you know, top it off to the degree you can, and then you, you keep on going. So, you know, for, for most users, you know, as you said, you know, 365 days, 33 miles that, you know, that's about 12,000 miles. That's about the average of what most people drive. And when it's time to take a road trip to the grandparents' house or, you know, road trip to, to Disney World or wherever, you know, for a vaca family vacation, you don't have to plan ahead. You just go. Right. You know, and, and that's that's the beauty of this. And that's, this is why I think that, you know, this is actually the ideal form of electrification for a vehicle of this type. I, I agree. I think if you're if you're going to to grandma's house or something, you really should plan ahead anyway for other reasons. Well, that, okay, that's true. I'll give you that. How can I escape? Uh, <laughs> no, but I think I mean I thought it was it was first of all it was super easy to charge, and you know and that's something too. Like I had run into the and and again it, everybody's charging situation is different. For me, I use an outdoor plug. It happens to be a landscaping plug. I uh, but. I had the i3 uh, back in the summertime and the plug was so short and in the back, like where a, a fuel tank was, would have been, and I couldn't reach my plug. And so I had to do, I had to basically park on my, for, on my lower walkway to get close enough to the plug. It was, it was a big fat mess. The Pacifica has this really long plug, the, the, uh, the outlet is in the front of the vehicle uh, and it's just, it was just really convenient. Now it would not be so convenient in rain and snow. And I thought about that because the last thing that you want to do is stand out in the rain while you're plugging this thing in. So somebody else had mentioned that they thought the majority of Pacifica owners would install a level two charger. And I, I, I asked, I said, I, I wasn't aware of that 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 was you know that he's he was like 90 percent, and i don't know if that was just hyperbole or not but i didn't know if you guys knew actually i would be surprised if it's more than maybe 20 percent because it caught me off again, guard. yeah the, you know this this is another one of those pieces of data that gm shared uh, you know with the vault is when when we asked why they didn't uh, provide dc fast charging support on the on the second generation volt mm. they said well Again, you know, from their data, they found that, you know, about 85, 90% of Volt owners didn't even bother, um, you know, having a level two charger. They just plugged into a 110 volt outlet and, you know, overnight they were, they were able to get, you know, enough charge to do their daily driving, even right. from a 110 volt outlet. 
So, you know, I think that um, I, I would I would be surprised if it's more than a quarter of Pacifica owners that are spending the five hundred to a thousand dollars to install a level two charger for that thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's probably safe to assume that at least fifty percent of them are going to be in a garage, though. So the the plug issue is not going to be a big deal. Yeah, and Chrysler uh-huh. has pretty thoughtfully designed all of that side of the the Pacifica hybrid to to be really easy to use. Like you said, you don't want it to be hard to figure out, especially right. not for a family vehicle. And and I think that that overall. The Pacifica is just really easy to use, whether it's gas or hybrid or, or whatever. It's it just is. That, it's that kind of kind of vehicle. It is. I, I I thought it was great. I was surprised. So from from outside of just charging it, I was surprised inside the back. The third row is really small, like for for three people. Like when I was I was taking pictures of it, and I just thought, man, I just can't imagine having three people back there for any length of time. Uh, it's it's really, I mean, obviously little kids is one thing, but if this is a vehicle that you want to grow with your children, I feel like I can't imagine putting three teenagers in the in the back row. That was just my own when I looked at it. You know, I felt like it was ideally a six passenger vehicle. It's a seven passenger if you know each other really well and you have a short drive. <laughs> so are these like corn fed teenagers or sort of like, you know, no, the back seat, compact, the third row uh, is really narrow. I mean, the third, really? the, well, this, the, the middle seat specifically, the middle seat is very narrow in that third row. It's not a full. You know, it, it it didn't to me. It didn't. It looked it looked surprisingly narrow. Again, it's going to be fine for for little kids. It'll be fine, I would say, up to twelve and thirteen years old. But you know, if you've got a basketball team in there, you know, tall teenagers <laughs> kind of thing, I I don't know. Again, I'd love to get some feedback from real world use on that. You know, whether it's a comfortable seven seater for a long trip. I would guess, you know, for for adults, probably not. But as again, as you said, I think the primary use case is going to be when you've got smaller kids. Right. Because one of the, you know, the beauty of a minivan, you know, is, you know, it's it's perfect if you've got kids that you've got to strap into booster seats or child seats. Yep. Because, you know, in an SUV, a taller SUV, you know, reaching up, you know, to load the kids into a booster seat, you know, buckling them in and everything. It's a real pain in the ass, you know, it's, it's yeah. not a good experience. And, you know, a minivan is ideal for that, especially with the sliding doors, you know, yep. and, you know, in the middle, in the, in the second row seat, you know, a couple of, um, uh, you know, put a couple of booster seats or child seats in there. It's so much easier to handle, you know, the kids getting them in and out of that, that kind of situation. And even, you know, getting them into the, the third row seat is so much easier than doing that in an SUV. Yeah, for sure. And I love the fact that the sliding doors are electric. You can open them up. The kids can pile in. They can get themselves in their own seats at a certain age. They can buckle themselves in. I mean, there's nothing, there's no other vehicle that's more family friendly than a minivan. And I also love the fact that in this particular one, so this one, so it was the, um, it was the Pacifica Hybrid Limited and it had a sticker of, a base price of forty five five, and then this one had a couple of optional things. It had this um, uh, a 
little bit of a, a 20 speaker Harman Kardon sound group, which was a special, it was only 175 with an emergency kit. And then there was something, well, I don't know, it's a little confusing. There's the S package, which is an appearance package for $7.95, and then advanced safety tech, which was great. So they did a really good job with adaptive cruise control. They had lane departure warning. They had um, park assist, all those kinds of things. And it was only $9.95, which isn't terrible. I would love to have it standard, but you know, it's still not bad. And so all of that uh, came up. There was another one for $17. Oh, that's the, the tripane panoramic sunroof which was enormous at but it's almost eighteen hundred dollars so the total was um with destination was fifty thousand eight hundred so and know, keep in is, mind that you know uh because that thing has a 16 kilowatt hour battery it's still eligible for the full seventy five hundred dollar yes. federal tax credit so yes you can take is. that right off the top and depending on so, where you live you may have some state incentives too yeah exactly. so that's that's cheaper I mean, I guess it's about parity with the last um, Toyota Sienna I had just a couple mm. weeks ago. And I guarantee you that the Pacifica just felt a lot better and drove it a did. lot better. I had the, I had a Sienna a couple weeks ago as well. I, and it was really night and day. The other thing, too, the Pacifica has the stow and go. Well, at least through the third row. Right, the third row. Oh, the third. Yeah, I was going to say with the hybrid, right? The batteries, the second row doesn't do it. But if you've got a gas uh, Pacifica, it, it will. Right, it does. Row, and yeah. it, it was just, it was nice to drive it. It was white. It felt like a refrigerator. So I wouldn't, <laughs> I probably. Stormtrooper. Stormtrooper <laughs> with oh, the S package, right? It right, has the blacked out trim. Right, it does have the S package. Um, right. I, my, I mean, my favorite Stormtrooper is Tom Brady, but we'll talk about that later. He <laughs> <laughs> didn't do so good yesterday. Um Except for yesterday. <laughs> so here, here's the thing that I wind up in this discussion a lot with some colleagues because we're all about the same age. We have kids. And so we're looking for family vehicles. And, you know, I'll mention vans a lot. I'll say, you know, the best thing to get is the van. And so then we talk about the relative merits of each van. And, you know, the Sienna, it's, it, it always comes up. And I say, yeah, it's, it's good. It just feels really old. And the pilot, I mean, not the pilot, the, uh, the Odyssey, Odyssey drives like it's got that soul of a motorbike in there somewhere, but it's also it's kind of pricey and um, some of the tech isn't as good. The, the Pacifica really has it nailed with all of the tech. It's the only hybrid van. And then the one sort of thing that, that people get a little squeamish about is, oh, but it's not all wheel drive. The only all wheel drive van is the Sienna. And you know, my my counterpoint to that is like, really, you should look at the Pacifica. I think it's the best van on the market, especially in the hybrid. And the hybrid is not only a little heavier, so that's good in some ways for winter traction once you put winter tires on it. Um, and it's it's not really such an issue. I don't know where you guys stand I, on that. but No, I agree. I mean, now, just, I, I, I would yeah. say a front wheel drive van with winter tires will beat an all wheel drive van with all season tires. Any seven days of the week. Yeah. Every day. Absolutely. Yeah. So I was getting, because one of our, somebody asked me this, I ended up getting 34.1 miles per gallon. That wow. was seven <laughs> miles of battery, seven miles of gas. That was one example. And then somebody, um, they hadn't reset the tripometer and it was up there is about, tw it was around 30 miles per gallon, I think over, over several hundred miles. So that's pretty good. Cause as you say, it's a heavy van, you know, and it's just, it was really nice to drive. I mean, it was, 
you know, for as vans go. And, you know, I had some twisties in it. Last night I was coming home late and there three deer ran out right in front of me. And, you know, it stopped pretty well. I mean, I wasn't going really fast, but, you know, when deer run out, it's it's startling. Uh, and, you know, it just, it, it did a lot of things really well. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic vehicle for, for families, for sure. And it has plenty of room if you hit those deer. You can just stick them in and have venison steaks. <laughs> well, hey, so Not just for perspective. You, you, you take care of that, that stow and go third row seat, you know, That's drop right. it down yeah, into the exactly. bin in the back. Just haul throw the carcass. A right, down. Throw a tarp in, haul oh. the carcass right in there, clean it up when you get home. I did hit a squirrel, though. He was suicidal, though. He, yeah, he now was, he's flat. He was start, <laughs> If he had continued across the road, he would have been fine. But instead, he came back towards me. Oh, they turn around. Yeah, that's, no, that's the worst like, thing. When, you, when you're, when you're going to run across the road, when you're a little rodent like that, you have to be decisive. You either exactly. don't go or you go all the way. You don't stop halfway. Yeah, you can't stop and turn around. That's Because there's nothing you can do, right? At that point, you I, feel bad, but you're just like, uh, you, yeah. hear the, you hear the thwack thwack. Exactly. And like, oh, oh man, and I looked sucks. back and he was rolling and oh, it was terrible. Uh, I'm sorry. So anyway, so so just <laughs> <laughs> we digress. So just one more th- point on this. I I had another. This was when the battery was fully charged, and I went 16 miles on on all electric and one and a half miles on gas, and I got 47.8 miles per gallon. That's I mean Over that's pretty good. Miles. Uh, oh, oh. I mean that's really good. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Overall, it flattens out. I'm sure, like over the life of the vehicle, your your lifetime fuel economy probably drops from that. But that's there's not another van you can do that with where you can just go 15 miles on battery alone. So exactly. I, I think part of that, like that right there, is your answer to the the criticism um, uh, that you you got into on on Instagram. And I, and I think part of that is you know what are you, what are you expecting? What what are your your expectations out of it? It's not a full EV. It's so. it's not a full EV and it's not for everybody. And I understand that there's families that do a lot of running around in a given day. But as you guys said at the very beginning, it's still better than nothing. It's right. still oh, better yeah. than and, all you know, when, gas. If you're if you're dropping off your kid, you know, dropping off your kids at school, you know, you pull right up there in electric mode, you're not, you know, you're not spewing any fumes there, you know, around all the other Absolutely. kids. Absolutely. Nice Sitting and quiet. in the pickup line. Absolutely. Yeah. I think what you I think what you need is you need the like the really filthy diesel yeah. and batteries so that like, you know, when you see those punk kids that don't get along with your kids, flip the switch and go under coal you, rolling. Mode. That's right. You just belching out. Speaking <laughs> of diesel, the uh, Jeep Wrangler diesel is launching this week. The media launches this week. I'm, I'm very jealous. People are, I, that's going to be a good, like $90,000 Wrangler. <laughs> uh, it'll be about 60, probably about, about 60. <laughs> $60,000. Um, yeah. What, one, one more thing about the, the range that you saw, Rebecca, um, was it, was it as cold earlier in the week when you had this as it was here? Like, you know, was the temperature down into the thirties? And- uh, you know, not really. It didn't, it, it did get, there was only one night that it was chilly. I, I th- actually, you know what, last night it was pretty chilly. It was, uh, I brought my plants in last night and there was a little bit, a little, little tiny bit of frost this morning. Um, but it, it was definitely chilly. But again, this was the what was interesting was this actually the battery actually filled up to 33. Whereas the other night when it was warmer, it only went up to 25. And I don't I didn't well, do anything different. Yeah. Well, the you know, the range estimates that it that it's going to give you are based on, you know, your the driving style up to that point. You know, so it's going to be adjusting. So 
Okay. Whoever, maybe whoever had it last sure. you know, might have been driving more aggressively. And, you know, and, I didn't and, have it. And <laughs> depending, depending on what the weather conditions were, you know, sure. it, so it's, it's doing a running average, you know, as to calculate that range, you know, to try and give you something that is realistic um, based mm -hmm. on the way you've been driving it. So it'll, it'll adjust up or down. If you drive it, if you hypermile the thing, yeah. you'll actually see the, the range, you know, the estimated range climb up above 33 miles. Um, you know, depending on, depending on the conditions. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's trying to learn from your behavior. And that's, that's one of the problems with, you know, when you're jumping into different cars every week and you have different people driving it, Right. you know, whoever, whoever was driving it before you was perhaps driving more aggressively <laughs> and that's why it estimated uh, 25. And then after it saw the way you were driving, then it adjusted, you know, uh, for the next time you charged. Right. Because I was trying to be pretty careful. And then yesterday I drove up to my mom's, which is mostly highway. It's a little bit of back roads, but a lot of it is highway. And I think I got, I, I definitely got more than 25 miles out of that drive. But, you know, I just think it was, it's just, I, I love the technology on a family van like this. I think it's really, really commendable. And I think it's fantastic. I think I think they did a really nice job. I'd love to have it for not only a longer period, period of time, but just to be able to live with it a little bit more and put a little bit more miles on it because I, you know, I think it was, it was, they did a really good job. And I liked the regenerative braking was, was very normal. You know, it wasn't any of this, ooh. Oh, I will say though, <laughs> When I was driving it in full electric mode, I floored it because I wanted to see how it would sound. And it didn't sound great. <laughs> it sounded like it was sort of straining well, a yeah, little it's, bit. It's, yeah. Well, it's got it's got the stand, you know, it's got the, the typical uh hybrid CVT. Yeah, it, it was very CVT. The mo motorboating. You know? <laughs> It did yeah. that a lot. So I wouldn't recommend doing zero to 60s uh, launch control with it, but otherwise it was very good. <laughs> but, you know, again, you know, look at, you know, who the customer base is for a vehicle like this. Yes. They're not likely to be driving it that way anyway. No, exactly. I mean, I will say it, I noticed it just when I was accelerating onto the highway was actually the first thing. I, I That's when I actually noticed it. So it was a bit in normal driving. And then I stopped on the road uh, when I, when obviously it was safe to do so. And I just floored it to see what it sounded like. And it was pretty whiny. It was pretty uh, CVT. -y. You can't, you can't light up the tires. I know. <laughs> <You can't. laughs> no. Just, oh, that's too bad. It's, I mean, it, I bet it can. It just won't let you. Well, yeah, well, when you, get it, you get it on some wet it. pavement, those all season tires, those low rolling resistance, all season tires, so they'll spin. But yeah, probably when Ralph Shields, the designer from a uh, from FCA, when he drives it, he can probably get it to smoke up a bit. That's yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, so, you know, you spent your, your time, some of your time in the Pacifica, but you split your time, right? You had a, a G70 as well, right? Or was it the G90? It was the G90. Yes. G90. I'm yeah. sorry. No, no, no. I, to give I think. You I probably made that error um, when I sent you the note. Um, let me see. Hold on one second. That is a lovely. No, car. Dan. Dan just misread it. Yeah, I just uh, 
Yeah. No, it's definitely possible. I I swear. No, it was it was G ninety in Slack. Yeah, it was okay. So Okay, that's very gracious of you. Though. <laughs> <laughs> like, so, like Brian said last week, you guys are so polite to each other. Oh, we don't have to be. I mean, we can change that. <laughs> uh, it's okay. So yes, so I had I had the Genesis. It was 2019 Genesis uh, G90 all wheel drive. Uh, this one had the 5.0 liter engine in it. The V6, uh, or V8. Did we talk about V8. this? V8 five five liters. The V8. Yeah, it was the V8. It was. It was powerful. I mean, you know, it just is. And it was plush and gorgeous. And I really wanted to just sit in the backseat and play with stuff. Like, (laughs) it was just. And that's what a car like this is built for. To have somebody else drive it for you. Exactly. Very much so. This this is the ultimate autonomous car. Yes, it is. Now. It doesn't even need any special sensors. (laughs) Yeah. And it just needs the meat robot. <laughs> so no, it it was beautiful. Um, so this one went for this one has an MSRP of seventy six thousand three fifty. Oh, that's such a deal for a car like that. For a car that- like that, it really is. And it was this gorgeous Adriatic blue that was like a. It, it was more of a gray than anything. It was just stunning. I mean, it's. You know, the proportions of it, it's just an absolutely, absolutely beautiful vehicle. And and it drives, you know, just really responsively and a lot of fun and, you know, diving into the corners and everything you want it to do. But I definitely wanted to spend some time in the back to see what it was like. So, yeah, it was it was lovely. Um, also, there's been big news at Genesis, though, because uh, the president of the brand Manfred Fitzgerald I uh, stepped down I'm going to go with <laughs> he's is he, did he get did he get um we we call it at work we call it future endeavored yes. which what happens is you get the, everybody gets the email the all hands email with the name and the subject line and then this very terse like so and so is no longer with the company we wish them the best in their future endeavors yeah He's been future endeavored. Exactly. So Manfred's a really interesting guy. I've met him a number of times and he's very global. Uh, He is, uh, he speaks fluent German. He speaks, I think, fluent Italian. He's he's very multilingual, very much of a posh guy, came from Lamborghini uh, and is, and just super styled. And I think that uh, they you know, I don't know all the ins and outs of why he was let go, but I think that, you know, he Korean brands are really tough to work for. I mean, they there's results that they expect. And, you know, he yeah, inher- most, most non Korean executives don't have don't have very long tenures there. Right. They don't. And he was there a number of years and he really inherited a mess. And, you know, not only did he inherit a dealership mess and a brand mess, but he also inherited a portfolio mess. This, you know, everyone is talking about how they need the SUV, which is now supposed to come out shortly. Uh, but I just saw one yesterday. Oh, did you really? Yeah, a camoed one uh, here uh, in town, um, or on Friday actually. How big was, is it? Uh, um, it's it's a three. The one I saw was a three row. Um, so you know, it's like Palisade size. Oh, is it really? It's that big. Yeah. Wow. Maybe maybe a little bit smaller. Okay. But it's going to be, I, I mean, based on what the Palisade looks like, I think it's a really handsome vehicle. Yeah. Um, you know, th- th- we'll probably see this one uh, coming out 
you know, early next year, pro- probably at the New York Auto Show, I would guess, if not sooner. Yeah. Well, and I think the G90 is sort of an indicator of um, what what your guy Fitzgerald was able to actually do. Because like you said, it was it was kind of a mess. I kind of remember the first, you know, the Hyundai, when it was still Hyundai Genesis, uh, and they brought out the, the sedan and the, the coupe. And it was this sort of weird two-prong approach. And the cars were, they were good. They just weren't good enough. Uh, and they've really quite quickly moved into being just very good and very competitive. Uh, I did the last time I drove a G90, I think it might've been a G80. I forget off the top of my head. Either way, the last time I drove a Genesis sedan, it it left me exceptionally impressed because there there is, you, you don't need to have those qualifiers anymore. Like for a Hyundai. Right. (laughs) When you say it's very good. No, it's, it's very good. It's just, it's just good. Period. And I think that, I think the G70 really cemented that for, you know, really critical acclaim. Uh, And, uh, you know, that, I mean, the G70 is just nonstop fun. You know, it's just an an incredibly great vehicle to drive. And I drove it a couple of years ago in Korea uh, when they first, when I actually, one of the first times I met Manfred and I said, you know, I just, I'm questioning what the plan is with this brand. And this was like two and a half years ago. And he said, well, come to Korea and you'll get to know it a little bit more. And I did. And obviously in Korea, they're much more popular as well. But it was just interesting to kind of see, you know, where he was going. And I thought he had a really good team around him and designing for him. And I just, I'm disappointed that he didn't get an opportunity to unveil the the SUV because that's really going to bring new buyers into the brand. I think a lot of people are waiting. The other issue is the dealerships and the dealership strategy has gone back and forth where they've said to some dealers, at first it was only certain dealers were going to get the brand. And then other people said, I'm not going to spend $80,000 on a vehicle and go into a Hyundai dealership. And so then they wanted a separate section of the dealership, but you're still at the dealership. So that didn't really work. And then they kind of ended up now where all the dealers, everyone is getting, can sell Genesis. So they've had a lot of fits and starts with the dealer strategy, and but the product just continues to get better and better and better. They'll figure it out. They will. At some point. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I have faith. <laughs> so what have you guys um, been in? Yeah, Sam, uh, why, don't you, why don't you go? What have you been driving? So uh, over the last couple of weeks, <clears throat> I've been in the uh, the new Toyota Corolla, uh, the XSE, which uh, for the first time is a Corolla that I would actually consider perhaps wanting to own. Uh, you know, this is <laughs> it's both a really good looking sedan, you know, compact sedan, and really nice to drive. I mean, it was it was a very pleasant experience being in this thing. Um, That's how yeah. I felt about the last Corolla I was in. I was just, I was just like, wow, this thing's really good. It actually has steering feel. Yeah, it's <laughs> a steering feel, uh, nice, comfortable seats. It's roomy, um, you know, and you know, nice, you know, really sharp looking car too. Especially the front end. I like what they've done with it. You know, the way they've done the the lights at the front. Um, you know, the the engine, you know, has adequate power. You know, it's not it's not a stormer, but you know, it's a one point eight liter naturally aspirated four cylinder. And it's with a CVT, so it's not 
you know, the CVT is okay. It's, it's not great, but it, it's fine. Uh, I think most people will have no issues with, excuse me, no issues with it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just a, a really pleasant place to be. The, you know, the, the main issues I have with it are still, you know, the Entune infotainment system, which is still kind of mediocre. Um, and it, it still does not support Android auto, uh, which, you know, eventually maybe someday they will, but for now it still doesn't. The one I had, the XSE, you know, is a t- basically a top trim level. Uh, it has navigation and, you know, all the driver assist features and everything. I tried using the the voice recognition in there and it was very much hit and miss, you know, in terms of what it would recognize, what it wouldn't recognize. You know, it was just, it wasn't a particularly pleasant experience. The audio was good. You know, it's got a JBL audio system in there with nine speakers, you know, so it sounds good, but the, you know, just the, um, the, the general interface was, you know, kind of typical of what we've seen from Toyota, which is just kind of okay. Not, not, particularly great how big um, is the screen uh the screen is i, mean, I believe it's, a good size? It's, an, it's an eight inch yeah it's an oh, eight inch okay. screen yeah that is nice yeah and it's you know it's one of those you know that sits on top of the dash now oh, uh so i don't love those i i i prefer i prefer those because it's up closer to your line of sight i don't want to have mm. to look down at the screen yeah fair enough um, you know and and that's why they're doing that um so and it had you know this one had um a Qi wireless charging pad, um, <clears throat> excuse me, lots of other um, features in there. It does have CarPlay support uh, if you're an iPhone user, which is fine. Uh, Siri eyes free. But um, the, the lack of Android Auto, I think, is is something that, you know, Toyota just really needs to address across the lineup. You know, this it's kind of ridiculous. They're, they're the last mainstream automaker that does not include both systems, support I, for both systems. I do wonder, and I can ask somebody, or and you may know, what percentage of their buyers are Apple. Because I asked, because when Porsche said 80, 85% of their buyers are Apple, and that's why they're not worried about it. Yeah, well, I think the the demographics for the Corolla are a little bit different, you know. And a little when bit you look different. at <laughs> when you know when you when you look at the overall market in the U.S., you know, it's 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 about fifty two forty eight uh, iPhone versus Android in the U.S. market. Really, uh, iPhone is more popular. Yeah, the the, the U.S. is the mm-hmm. only market where that's true. Everywhere else in the world, uh, Android is about 85 percent of the market. <sighs> Once again, Americans proving that we are indeed no, wait, insufferable. Wait, clarify that. <laughs> Apple is fifty two percent. Apple's fifty two percent. Apple's Apple's about fifty one, fifty two percent of the U.S. Right. market. And in the rest and of the world, Android the rest of the world, 80%. it's Android dominates. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because that's that's been my experience as well. And so I thought well, you said but, the other way. So I just wanted to clarify yeah. that. Yeah. I, I have to say, even I'm a, I'm a new recruit to the iPhone and CarPlay and stuff. And it, it, that experience, it's consistently not great yeah. <laughs> on everything because you, you just plug it into your phone. Um, it, it's... I don't know what the alternative. I don't. I haven't. I didn't. None of my Androids were expensive enough to have uh, Android Auto, <laughs> so um, I can't really compare. But uh, I get the impression that Android Auto is actually better. Uh, I I personally prefer it. 
but um, you know the newer versions of CarPlay. You know the, the the latest version of CarPlay is definitely better than what was originally in the first version of it. So it's it is improved, and I, I think they're they're you know in terms of the user interface, I think they're both fairly comparable at this point. Where I think Android still has a significant advantage is in the voice control. Uh, Google Assistant just works better than Siri does. You know, across the board. Yeah. So I think that's that's the biggest advantage that Google has right now. Um, but you know, in terms of in terms of driving this car, you know, and again, you know, looking at the demographics of who are the customers that are going to be buying a Corolla versus buying a Taycan. Um, you know, I think that there's <laughs> there's probably a, a, perhaps a little bit of a difference. You know, in the mix I of know, you know, you don't think, Android. You don't think Corollas are. Brought I don't it know. up because I'm wondering what the split is. Maybe it's like 70 30. And for Toyota across the board, also, and Lexus. Yeah. I think, I really think that, that the Corolla is winning conquest buyers from the Tycoon. <laughs> That's not what um, I meant. It's, it's de- de- definitely conquesting uh, Porsche customers. Uh, so, yeah. Now you're going to give women in automotive a bad name. That's not yeah. what I meant. No, 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 no. I'm just, listen, we're, we're making jokes. My point we're, we're was making... that as a brand, Porsche. No, I, I, I think, I, I think you're right on. I think it makes sense. I, um, I wonder what the breakdown is and I'll try and find out. Uh, I, I would, I would guess it's probably closer to the overall market breakdown of Android versus iPhone, which is probably, you know, closer to that 50, 50 split uh, in the U S yeah. anyway. I think if, if you were going to look, my expectation, and maybe we can back this up with some data. So my my hypothesis, which we will have to test with the scientific method, yeah. is that the more you get to a luxury brand, the higher percentage are going to be Apple users. Why um, do you think that is? Because a, it's Apple's Apple stuff is phone. more expensive. The, okay, the fact, sure. Right so, okay. so I had a I had a Motorola XT1030. It was like a $150 Android. And it was the most expensive Android I'd ever owned, and I had it for like four years. I only replaced it because I dropped it and shattered the screen. <laughs> and uh, we, ha- I only went to iPhone because we had one, um, and it was it was here. I was like, well, that that was a stupid expensive phone, and if it still works, like okay, fine. And everybody else in the family is on iPhone anyway, so there are some benefits from being on the same network. Right. So, uh, it's, it's not just a luxury purchase. For There's sure. actually reasons for it, but. Um, yeah, it, it, this is definitely a premium piece of hardware. And that's what I've noticed after uh, after using it. It's the same reason why I've used uh, Mac laptops for a while is they're premium hardware. Yes, you spend more for them, but you also tend to get a longer service life out of them. They they do have that advantage of Apple does a better job of supporting, um, you know, providing software updates over a longer period of time. Mm. And, you know, a four, you can... It's not unreasonable to use a four or five year old iPhone, um, whereas you know a three year old Android phone, you know, tends to be a little bit challenging. Shall we it say? It feels like a piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So That's... anyway, so back to the Corolla. But anyway, How, what was the yeah, Corolla so, like to drive? Was it as nice it, as like the yeah? I mean, it, 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 yeah, it, it you know, like most of the other you know TNGA platform cars, you know, it the handling, uh, ride quality, really good. Nothing to nothing I could complain about. It's got some decent steering feel, um, you know, and it's just just a really pleasant car to, to spend time in. Uh, you know, we we took it to uh, to go to the uh, Centennial Gala at my alma mater. Uh, you know, it was about an hour, a little over an hour drive each way, and you know, I had no complaints from my wife, and you know, it was it was great. So you know. This particular one that I had, you know, being in a loaded XSE, 
um, with sunroof and everything came to just shy of $29,000. So, you know, mainstream cars aren't quite as, you know, affordable as they used to be, but, but it's still a, a well, okay, yeah, but wait a minute, you know, just com- back to up be fair, you're, to, to be fair, you're cause I know we're, a hot shot automotive guy and you show up to your college thing and a Corolla. That's the best that you could do, really. Uh, well, He's an engineer. Do? Engineers don't care. Uh, you know, you're like, oh, you yeah, made well, guess, solid engineer. Guess, guess who pulled up behind me? It was Raj Nair, former uh, yes. president of Ford, in his GT350. Yeah, exactly the same. Yeah. Well, that's a little flashy. He's like, geez, Raj. Hey, you know, um, I, I just tossed the keys to the valet and said, here, you know, do what you will with it. Yeah, but but so here's the thing too. This was the fanziest Corolla there is. The XSC. It's yeah. a, it's a thirty thousand dollar Corolla. Yeah, I mean you can you can get a Corolla, you know, starting at twenty grand, and you know yeah. it's it's you know going to be almost an equally nice vehicle to spend time in. Corolla L starts at nineteen six. That's there I mean that's before destination. So it's yeah. just twenty. Yeah, twenty grand. Which is I mean that's that's pretty much the going rate these days for a C segment car. You know it, you know in that twenty to twenty five thousand dollar price range. You know, with the, the premium versions, you know, creeping up towards thirty, but you know that twenty to twenty five is that's that's kind of the mainstream now for for a new compact car, uh, which you know is also the reason why you know the vast majority of people never buy new cars; they buy used cars. You know, the 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 percentage of people that actually buy new cars is you know is is a tiny. I mean, you you probably have a, a better idea of what that percentage is than I do, Rebecca, based on, on your history yes. at, at Cox. Well, so actually, I mean, it, it's a tiny percentage. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, go ahead. So actually, so my former employer, Cox Automotive, they were kind enough to send me some, their 2019 car buyer journey study recently. And I, just before we were going on the air, I'm preparing for this presentation I'm doing. And it's, I came across this nugget, the percentage of vehicles costing more than $50,000 has grown from 6% in 2012 to 23% in 2018. So 6% in 2012 to 23% in 2018 of vehicles costing over 50 grand. I mean, that's just incredible. That's, that, to me. that's not consumers doing that. That's, well, actually, I, you know, you know, you know where a, a lot of that growth has come from is from the truck and SUV market. Yes. Because, of you know, if you like full size trucks, um, you know, average transaction prices for F one fifties are, you know, about $50,000 now. Right. But I, I feel like that's a deliberate strategy though, on the part of, automakers and the sort of the finance side of the business, because they're going to offer you, you know, the morning edition, just, it was, I think Friday or it was morning edition or all things considered on NPR. They had a story about sort of the rise of the seven year car loan. Uh And that that's the thing is terms have been getting longer and longer and longer. So you, and they, they can make the cars last for, you know, you give through 50,000 miles like nothing. That's virtually, you buy a car with 50,000 miles on it, unless it's been abused. Generally, it's a pretty fair uh, analog for the brand new car experience. Right. And and average age of cars down in the U.S. is about 12 years. And, yeah. you know, it's it's not at all unusual to see, you know, cars running 20, 25, 30 years. So... I just, I feel like the industry has aligned to push us into expensive cars. Well, but also, I mean, we're, but new car buyers are expecting the technology to keep pace. So, 
you know, this other project that I've been working on, I'm looking back at vehicles that came out in like 16, 17, 18, 19. And I'm going through and looking to say, what are the changes model to model year to model year? And the majority of time, the changes that were made were to technology. They were to add Android Auto and Apple CarPlay. They were to add driver assist features you know, things like that. And so and to make them more fuel efficient and safer. I mean, you know, you yes. got 10 airbags now. You've got, you know, you've got cars that you can crash into a, a barrier, you know, into a, a small offset rigid barrier test at 25, at, at 40 miles an hour. And you could still open the driver's side door. It, it, exactly. I mean, it's you know? like, so what we're yeah. expecting the manufacturers to put into these vehicles is far above what we were expecting, I would say, even 10 years ago. I think that's that's fair, but I also wonder if the tech is actually all that expensive, given that a lot of it is software and some sensors. Versus- um, no, there's licensing agreements. There's a lot more than that. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, you know, that's some true. somebody's got to pay for the software. You know, I mean, the software has to be developed. It has to be paid for. You know, and you know, all all those sensors. You know, while individual sensors, you know, on their own are not all that expensive. You know, like camera sensors and radar sensors. You know, they're about thirty or forty bucks, but you know, all of a sudden you've got five cameras instead of 40 bucks, you're talking $200. And, you know, then you've got all the wiring for all of that, um, you know, the computers to, to run all the stuff. I mean, you know, a typical car now has got somewhere, somewhere around, you know, anywhere between 50 and 75 computers in it and high end vehicles, you know, can be up to 125, 130 computers in there, uh, you know, and, three or 400 pounds of copper wiring. So, you know, it's, it, it all, you know, all this, you know, what when you take them onesie twosie, yeah, they don't add up to much, but you know, all, all those nickels and dimes eventually start to add up to real dollars. That's lovely. I yeah. like that. I'm going to, going to leave that there. The Corolla on the other hand, maintains its position as being a uh, relatively affordable car. That $19,000 starter Corolla is equivalent to about, I'd say about a $3,000, $3,300 car in like 1970. Oh, yeah. Yeah, easily. Yeah. So. But it's while it is still a reasonable value in its low-end trim levels, it's not necessarily the best value. That that honor actually probably goes to the, the Hyundai Elantra, uh, which I also drove after after giving back the, uh, the Corolla. I had the Elantra GT N-Line, um, which uh, came to – uh, $24,230. And, you know, this was, you know, the, the high end version of the, of the, uh, Elantra GT, you know, so, uh, this one has their, the 1.6 liter turbo, which, you know, we've talked about before. And this is an engine that I really like, you know, they use it in a whole bunch of different Hyundai and Kia products. Um, and the, the one I drove was the manual transmission. Uh, and it's a very slick shifting manual, you know, 201 horsepower, 195 foot pounds of torque, um, you know, very, you know, it, really nice performance, you know, especially at this price point, you know, it's a, it's a very slick car and, you know, the, the Elantra GT I think is, is a good looking car too. And it has, has a, you know, really nice interior, especially when you compare it to the Veloster N that I was driving a few weeks back. Um, you know, the Veloster, you know, the Veloster still has, you know, all hard plastic surfaces, the the Elantra GT, on the other hand, you know, has nice, you know, much nicer materials, soft touch surfaces, uh, you know, and this, you know, the the GT is the the five door hatchback 
version, which is really one that is targeted more at the European market, but they've been bringing it to the U.S. And you know, I don't know what the the split, the sales split is. They don't, you know, they don't break out the sales split between the the Elantra sedan and the and the GT. But I I would guess it's probably not more than about twenty five or thirty percent at most of Elantra sales, probably less than that. But um, you know the it, it's a handsome looking vehicle, really nice interior. You know, for twenty four grand, the only complaint I have about this car is the suspension tuning was terrible. Uh, Are we back to that again? With that? I thought they figured that out. Well, the the regular Elantras and the standard. Yeah, you know, the not the the non end line GT um, is is really good. That's not a problem. But on this end line, which is kind of the sportier trim level that they have, uh, in in this case here, it's it has this, the same kind of problem that I experienced um, with the Ford Focus RS and and even the Focus ST, um, which is you know it's it's a little bit too stiffly sprung, you know, a little bit underdamped and um, when, you know, on these certain road surfaces around this area, particularly the stretch of I-94, not far from me here, you know, that it's got, you know, this kind of little bit of a wave to it. It gets into this vertical bouncing motion. And, you know, again, we, we went to, my wife and I went to Detroit to meet up with our daughter for, for lunch. And, uh, you know, it was just not a pleasant ride on that stretch of highway. And, you know, there's a few other places where it just felt a little, overly sprung, you know, over, overly stiff spring, spring rates, you know, and it's just, it was kind of, you know, not good, uh, which is unfortunate because, you know, everything else about this thing is, is really nice. You know, it's, it runs on 18 inch wheels with Michelin, uh, pilot sport, uh, tires. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a Ruby compact, uh, hatchback, lots of cargo space in the back, you know, and everything else about it is great except for the suspension tuning. Well, I mean, what you're saying basically is that it's almost as good as, as a golf. It's just, it's not quite a golf. Yeah. You know, I, I, frankly, you know, I, what I'd love, to, what I'd love to have is this, you know, this 200 horsepower one six turbo with the standard Elantra GT uh, suspension setup instead of the end line setup. Would would different tires help? No, not oh. I doubt it. Okay. Not not unless you went to like smaller wheels, right. like a seventeen or even a sixteen inch wheel with you know taller sidewalls. Yeah, um, that that would probably help. But it's it's really more of a you know of a spring rate and damping issue than anything else. Because okay. I've driven the the you know other trim levels of the Elantra GT and really liked it. It's just this this particular one, this N line version, is the first time that I've had this issue. Ah, okay. But it was it was the case that a few years ago, uh, Hyundai and Kia really couldn't figure out suspension tuning. Um, so the rest of the cars, again, were were great, but they just they rode and handled like cheap cars. But this is what you're not saying. This feels cheap. You're just saying it feels it's a little too stiff. Yeah, it's just you know, and as I said, you know, I think it, it may be a quirk of you know the some particular roads that we have around here. Um, but, uh, you know, cause I've, I've had, I've had this experience with some other cars, not all of them, but, um, but you know, certain, certain models that, um, just have this issue. 
um, you know, especially some that have been tuned for European roads, uh, you know, where it gets into this, this vertical motion. And I'm, I'm frankly kind of surprised, you know, because, you know, the N line uh, models, you know, are also tuned, you know, by, um, you know, by the same group that does the N models, you know, the, the higher performance models like the, the Veloster N. And there is a, an Elantra GT uh, in Europe, an N version of the GT, which is, you know, in Europe, the, the Elantra GT is called the I 30. And so there's an I 30 N in Europe. And these are all, um, developed by uh, Albert Bierman's group. So Al Albert Bierman is head of R and D at Hyundai. He formerly led BMW's M division. And, you know, they, they did, a, they actually did a better job on the N on the Veloster N than on this particular model. I wonder what, oh, there must be a reason. So we, we, you should be able to get to the bottom of that at some point, but yeah. you know, we're continuing hatchback week here. On, <laughs> on the podcast because I actually uh, it's funny I was really interested in um, the Elanto GT because I had a uh, a Golf SE uh, the the one point four liter turbo so a pretty similar car not quite as high spec um, but I felt like it's uh, it's overall still a benchmark for the class and and this is why I was very curious to see how the the Elanto GT did um, and. The ride and handling are really one of the places where Volkswagen has led the field with the Golf, and they can they continue to. I, I really like uh, the Golf. Um, I don't like their automatic transmission, but that's me. Is that the DSG <laughs> or the conventional no, automatic? It's just their conventional auto. It's just something about it is just it's grabby. It jerks your head back. It's just I I don't know. And the the one point four liter engine is one of those power plants that's good most of the time but it definitely runs out of breath when you really want it to have more lungs you know it, it uh it's a little limited in in sort of it, its power band is good it just doesn't have a whole lot of peak power and so uh there are times where you just you want it to accelerate a little quicker like some of the tight uh ramps here in new england but the car itself it feels really really solid it's it, it just again demonstrates why Volkswagen is sort of the, the benchmark here. The controls are really simple and easy to use. The car looks good. Uh, it, it Maybe it's a little conservative um, in, inside and out, but everything functions mostly as you'd expect it to. There's a couple of little bits of wonkiness with the infotainment system. It's it's better than the one in the Corolla, for sure, um, but it's, it's not quite as good as... Uh, I even even Uconnect is easier to use, and I know Uconnect is is sort of very friendly, um, but they're all kind of doing this. And I, I get to the point where I wish that somebody would standardize on something so they're not all so bad. It's better than the Supers I got out of. Um, but yeah, I mean the Golf just remains this solid, solid hatchback, and this is about a twenty-seven thousand dollar car. So I don't think you can do much. Uh, much better for the same money. I, I, I just, I'm, I'm, oh, I always like the golf. It's not even a GTI. I just, I, I like it quite a bit and it will, uh, it will return decent fuel economy depending on how you drive it. I feel like I drive kind of the most aggressively out of the three of us because <laughs> <laughs> my fuel economy is never great. Um, but it'll, it'll rack up 30, 30 plus miles per gallon on a, on a highway only trip. Easy. Well, that's nothing to complain about. No, sorry. 
the car I had the week before was the, the Volvo V60 cross country, which is a lot more luxurious. Mm, uh, it's a nice one. Not, yeah, it's nice. I, so I was, I was talking with, uh, with someone on Twitter about it, um, wh- whose opinion I, I appreciate. And, you know, his take on it was like, that car is perfect when it's parked. It's not as good to drive. <laughs> well, I'm getting the XC40 again. I had it last summer. And I really like the XC40. I know. I'm looking forward to it because, you know, I've had some issues with some of the – how the calib- the Volvos are calibrated. So I'm actually driving quite a distance in it. So uh, that'll be interesting to see. I have a, I have a, a road trip I need to go on uh, in, during the weekend. And so I'm looking forward to that. But I have to say on the Volkswagen, I just – I just I like you I just love Volkswagens. I had one it was it was the first car I ever I ever bought. It was a, a Volkswagen Cabriolet and um Ooh. they just make with the basket handle? <laughs> I don't know what do you mean the basket handle? The the big the, roll the big, bar. The big the oh, roll bar. It did. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it had the it had the roll bar. That's a good description. I like that. <laughs> but um you know the thing is that I think that that Volkswagen just has the ability to kind of elevate any vehicle to uh, to make it more drivable. It, it's driving enjoyment and driving dynamics. And I I always yeah. had a weakness for Volkswagens. Oh, my 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 experience with owning Volkswagens was that they were you know great cars to drive and terrible cars to own. Um, yeah, you know, because we had you know all kinds of issues with them that often required very expensive repairs. I know, you know and they, they've certainly gotten better. You know, their warranties have at least gotten better. And so, you know, it's less of a concern now I, than it used to be. I remember talking to this uh, one of the German guys over there and he said, I just don't understand why Americans have such issues with reliability. I said to him, well, we do expect the windows to go down and back up every time. <laughs> yeah, same, same for that sunshade on the, on, the winch, on the sunroof, you know, the shade on the sunroof. And, you know, when we press the door lock button, we expect... All of the doors to lock, yes. not just three of them. Exactly. <laughs> well, and, why and, would you expect that? That's unreasonable. Cars sometimes have defects, <laughs> says the engineer. Or I, I just like the best. The best to me is when uh, you're explaining to those guys, like, I don't like it because it doesn't operate this way. And their answer is always like, well, yeah, no. Why would you do it that way? Like that's not the way you're supposed to do it. Well, that that was like, I mean that was sort of when I when you, I challenged you. You read the manual and operate it the way the manual tells you to. No, we're Americans. We don't we don't do that. When I challenged the guy, you know, the at the at the Porsche Tycon, Taycan, I never say it right. Tycon. Tycon. I you know, I said, "Well, what about the Android users?" And he's like, "Well, that's not our market." Like what that was it. <laughs> It was just completely irrelevant. Like it didn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what else is going on? Oh, we have the the big merger, the PSA FCA merger, the yeah, Alphabet Soup uh, merger. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Fiat Chrysler, you know, finally trying to merge yet again. You know, with, yeah. with another company. I, we'll, we'll see. I, that still needs approval, doesn't it? Yes. Oh yeah. But but the French government recognizes that they messed up when they screwed up the Renault. Merger, so I don't think that they're going to get in the way this time. I think this one's going to happen. It, it, yeah, and you know, in a lot of ways, I think this deal actually probably makes a little more sense than the Renault mm. deal did. Um, you know, 
<clears throat> I think, you know, these two companies, I think in terms of their product line, lineups are a little more complementary to each other. Uh, you know, so I, I think, I think that this could actually work uh, for the two companies, depending on, you know, how the whole, you know, merging of corporate cultures and all that nonsense works out. I do wonder what this does for products like the Buick Regal though, which are supplied by Opal, which is now owned by PSA. I think the Regal is going to be going away in another year or so anyway. Anyway, um, yeah. I, I think the the production contract that they had with Opal, that GM had with Opal, I think expires in a year or so. And you know, frankly, if you look at Regal sales, I know. I, I don't. I don't think anybody's going to be too upset. You know, if it just kind of disappears. Goes. But it is, it is a good car. Oh, I, oh I know. Absolutely. We've talked about it. It's it's a great car. The Regal it's a, it's just, very good it's just that Americans just don't <laughs> want to buy them. I know. Yeah. It's too bad. But it but again it was just something that crossed my mind because they are German sourced and now it's good. Yeah, well right. and, and I I also I think that Buick I, I don't know. I actually see them trying to sell them too. I just I don't know why they they just they don't gel. I'm not sure why. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, if um, if GM really wanted to keep the Regal, they could source it from China because they are also built in China. Yes. Um, so they could get it from there if if there was enough demand for it. But frankly, you know, it makes no sense for GM to continue offering that car here. So wait a second now. Yeah. Are you saying that that you think that uh, I'm, I'm getting the, the impression that like just just the Regal is going to go away. It's not that GM has lost sort of incentive on on Buick itself. Uh, well, I mean, there's there has been some speculation that Buick might get dropped from the U.S. market um, because their sales have not been exciting, not too not too great. Um, but for now, just the, the just the Regal, because all all the other that's the only one that they get from Opel in Germany. But what do yeah, you? Yeah, well, that makes. What sense. do you think they're going to do about the? I mean, I, I realize the ones are, that are made in China are used in China, but the technology and everything. Do you think all that's been worked out? Already, like um, intellectual yeah. property. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm sure. You know, when they made, uh, I, well, I would assume when they made the sale because they GM does sell so many of those. Uh, you know, all all of those. You know, the same products in the Chinese market that you know they had a deal for the intellectual property. You know, the designs, and you know they also. You know, they they those many of those vehicles share platforms with cars that are built here as well, like right. the. The Malibu, you know, is on the same platform as the Regal um, and, you know, there's other GM products. So I'm sure that GM retained the rights to use those those uh, platforms. Okay. And in fact, my, my guess is that, um, you know, PSA probably you know had no interest in acquiring the, the, those the, that IP for uh, for those platforms. Mm-hmm. So it'll be I, well, it's, it's it's not exactly the newest IP at this point. And so even if you could get it. Although, I mean, FCA, on the other hand, has shown that you don't need the newest intellectual yeah, property it, to. You know, the, the, these cars are all really good, you know, even, even though they're, you know, based on older designs, uh, you know, from a suspension standpoint, they have been updated regularly over the years. And, you know, they, they perform perfectly adequately. Oh, yeah. Perfectly adequately is what I aim for. Uh, <laughs> no, well, cer- the, the Re- certainly seems to be GM's uh, target. Yeah. The Regal GS is a lot of fun to drive, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, it really needs is. more manual. Nah, it needs, man- needs manual. It That's d- a no, car that just... Fair enough. Yep, mm. I would go with that. Uh, I'm, I'm um, 
in terms of FCA and PSA, though, I like are we back in the situation where some other manufacturer is trying to swoop in and sees sort of that the wounded uh, Jeep owner sort of limping along and it's like, oh, there's a there's a, a weak one that's been separated from the pack. Let's get Jeep as our uh, sort of crown jewel, because you look at the rest of what's there, you know, Jeep and Ram are the two sort of profit generators for the brand. Fiat's not really doing anything. Um, Dodge and Chrysler are sort of shadows of their former self. I think there's some people here in the U.S. that imagine Chrysler as a luxury brand. <laughs> I, eh, I have a hard time thinking it's a true luxury brand. It's not. It's I, near I, premium I, at best. I mean, and and the, only the, the 300. And, yeah. and they, they only have two nameplates. Yeah. They've got yeah. Pacifica <laughs> and the 300. <laughs> Everything yeah. else was discontinued. So, you know. I, and I, those are good cars. The 300 could go away tomorrow and uh, it paid for itself X amount over. The, the problem that, that Chrysler has, that FCA has, is, is they don't have any replacements for and, and they don't have any small cars. And um, PSA also has a, a pretty a, a robust electrification program that that FCA doesn't have, right? Right. Yes. And, you know, the, the other, you know, the areas where G, where FCA's got strengths are, you know, the the SUVs, the trucks, and also in commercial vehicles in Europe. You know, so they've, they've got a pretty good commercial vehicle operation over there, which would definitely benefit PSA over there. Plus, you know, FCA's got, you know, a dealer network here. And PSA is a company that wants to bring some of their brands back into the U.S. market in the coming years. Well, that's so, what killed them the last time they were here. I will tell you that Peugeot and Renault dealers were garbage. Right. So, <laughs> you know, if they can at least, you know, if they can build decent vehicles and, you know, bring those into the U.S. market and, you know, and, and go through the FCA dealers, you know, then they don't have to establish a new dealer network. That's that's a good point. And yeah. I, you know, Jeep, Jeep is just a, I'm, I'm waiting to see if they snap it up just for Jeep and then see what gets, what gets cut. I mean, Alfa Romeo has not had a successful relaunch in the U S no. And it's, it's already been reported in the last day or so that as part of this merger deal that, um, that the, uh, I guess, and I guess, uh, during the, uh, the FCA Q3, uh, financial call last week, Mike Manley, announced that um, they were scaling back their investment in Alpha and the the GTV and the uh, the 8C Competizione uh, replacements were being put on hold for the time being. Huh. So well, yeah. they're going to they're going to focus on the on the Stelvio, the Julia uh, and then two smaller crossovers as well. And then the Fiat the 500 is going away and right. I mean the dealers are really limping along here. Yeah, I mean the the five the five hundreds you know five hundred's going to be killed. You know if they can, you know if they can keep them going long enough, you know perhaps they could use that dealer network for for PSA brands. So this is what this would create the fourth largest automaker. Right. Are we going to uh-huh. see another? Anytime this happens now to to, to Chrysler, I'm just worried that it's going to be a repeat of the merger of equals nonsense that happened with Daimler. No. Uh, while FCA sort of, uh, again, FCA swooped in or Fiat swooped in and, and they got a lot of benefit out of it. Um, and they certainly burnished Chrysler. So they invested smartly, but I don't, I don't know that the brands are in quite as, or that the overall business is in as quite a good shape as we might imagine. Well, no, but one of the biggest 
reasons that the Daimler-Chrysler, quote, merger of equals failed was because their, their, their customer base was so different. And Mercedes customers didn't want anything to do with Chrysler. And well, and granted, you know, Mercedes executives and engineers didn't want anything to do with Chrysler either. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, that's yes, that's I mean, it, I think it's obviously I think, not the customer. I, 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 I think, but you're I think the customers probably don't. I'm sorry. You're sitting in a meeting and you're designing a vehicle and you're thinking about a customer and their values. And these are two different sets of values. Neither of them is better or worse. They're just different. And that was part of the, that was one of the biggest challenges was they, they weren't designing with the same people in mind. And, you know, when, when you're talking, you know, if when you're talking about building a company that, you know, with brands that span, you know, the, the range of different market segments, you don't necessarily have to do that either. But there were so many other cultural issues between those two companies that, you know, the, 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 the Daimler engineers just did not want to work with the Chrysler people. They, right, they but didn't want still, to have anything to do with them. Right. But the culture is still somewhat customer based, you know, who you're designing yeah. for. And, and no, you're, you're right. It's, it, it, it spans, you know, the, the gamut, it runs the gamut of different customers. But if you're trying to share platforms, if you're trying to share a mindset, they just didn't, they didn't have it. And, and they weren't the same at all. And it was a very blue collar, white collar, European versus American. I mean, there were so many issues culturally that, and design wise, it just wasn't going to fit. I don't see those same types of extreme issues with, this merger. That's yeah, I, good. I, I, I agree. I, I think that this one has at least has the potential to work better. We'll we'll see, you know, if that how that actually transpires. But it, it's I think it has potential. All right. Well, when will we know more? Um, uh, like- you know, in the next few weeks. You know, I think the the boards have already tentatively approved. You know, moving forward with the deal, but you know, it's it's going to take at least you know six to nine months, you know, to go through all the regulatory approvals and everything. You know, it probably won't be till the second half of 2020. You know, if 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 everything gets approved, that you know, a merger actually happens. You know, and then you know, it'll be a couple of years after that. You know, before we start seeing any significant product changes. I, I mean, I think it's a, it's a smart move for for SCA in a lot of ways too, because the they killed all their small car platforms. They're th- not really that far into electrification, although they're further than we think. Um, so if they can just sort of buy their way into it, that's <laughs> not terrible. Right. And, you know, right now, neither company has much in the way of automated driving development. Um, but FCA does have relationships with BMW, Intel and Aptiv and Waymo. Uh, that, you know, the, the combined company could leverage that, you know, if they wanted to move forward with any of that stuff. And everybody has to consolidate on cost because the technology is so incredibly expensive. Also, uh, FCA shareholders are probably going to be pretty pleased with that. They're going to get a special dividend from it if the deal closes too. So they'll get, they'll get paid, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess we'll, more will be coming soon on that one. So what's next? Uh, the Shelby GT500. Oh, yeah. You got a chance to drive that. I bet it sucked. 
Uh, it was just, it was atrocious, you know. And anytime you put a supercharger on a Mustang, things just fall apart. Uh, what, it, well, that's kind of true. You know, actually, <laughs> actually, in, in this case, this is the first time you know that I've driven a GT500 that I actually really liked. Um, you know, in the past, you know, like I wrote in my review on Forbes that um, you know back 2008, I had you know the, the then current uh, bullet and GT500 about three weeks apart and reviewed both of them for Autoblog at the time. And even though the, the GT500, you know, had more than twice as much power as the bullet at the time, it, the, the bullet was such a much better car to drive, you know, GT500s in the past, you know, they have always been great at, you know, they were classic muscle cars. They were great at going really fast, accelerating really fast in a straight line. But when it came to turning, eh, not so much. And, you know, it didn't really get a whole lot better, you know, in the later years of the, the last generation GT500 when they kept cranking up the power and they got it up to like 662 horsepower. Um, you know, it was the car was still, you know, with that kind of power, it was still kind of a mess to drive on a road course or, you know, on even on the street. Um, this time they you know, they've taken a completely different approach to the, to the car and they've really applied a lot of the stuff that they've learned from developing the GT350 and really focused on making this thing really an all around sports car. And it's certainly the most powerful production Mustang ever, you know, at 760 horsepower. <laughs> um, and, and That's it's absurd. Yeah, it, it's, it is. Um, and it, it's also uh, rather pricey. Um, you know, it starts at, uh, like a little over $72,000. Um, and you can max it out at over a hundred grand. Um, you know, you can get it up to 102,500. Um, if you, if you really want to, if you want, if you get the carbon fiber kit and the, uh, the painted, uh, racing stripes, which that that's, uh, you know, the, the painted, if you go through the, the build and price for the GT 500, you have two options for racing stripes. You can get the the vinyl stripes, which are you know stick on stripes that go on top of the paint on top of the clear coat. Those are a thousand bucks. If you want the painted stripes, that's a ten thousand dollar option. And I I asked the Ford guys why it's so expensive, and they explained the the process. You know, it's actually a, a really labor intensive process to do that because what they have to do. The, the painted stripes, the, the, the stripes are actually underneath the clear coat. So what they have to do is the, the body goes into the paint line, into the paint shop. They paint the base coat, and then they have to take the body out of, off the line. And, you know, then, you know, let the, let the paint dry. They mask it. They paint the stripes. They spray the stripes by hand and, you know, clean it all up, polish it up, and then put it back into the paint line to go through the clear coat stage and then uh, baking the paint. So, you know, if you run your hand across the, uh, you know, across the painted stripes, you won't feel them, but, you know, and, and they won't, you know, they won't obviously won't peel off because they're underneath the clear coat. Whereas the, the painted stripes can, you know, over time, they'll eventually peel, start to peel off. Um, so, you know, if you, if you are, you know, if you, if you're a real collector and you, and you must have the best GT 500, then you want to go for the painted stripes, but for, you know, for, if you just want the fastest Mustang, you can, 
you can do without the stripes but altogether. The, those those are the people who are never going to drive them, and they're going to try I, to sell them for a zillion dollars. I know. In 10 years. I know. Like, but yeah, the, it, this this is actually a GT500 that you would want to drive. You know, we we drove it out in in Nevada, out in Las Vegas. And, you know, we spent a few hours on the road driving it, driving up into the mountains outside of Las Vegas. And then um, we had a chance to do some drag strip runs with it, quarter mile runs, and then took it on the road course at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. And, you know, even though this is a, a pretty heavy car, it's almost 4,200 pounds, um, you know, it actually feels much lighter. You know, it's got um, standard um, Magna Ride dampers. Uh, humongous brakes the front brake rotors the standard brakes on this thing it's all brembo brakes uh the front brake rotors are 16 and a half inch diameter brake rotors <laughs> with six piston calipers uh, uh you know and they uh, they had a display there with the uh, the brakes from the new gt500 and a wheel and tire from the original you know from a 1967 gt500 mounted back to back and the the brake rotor on the new car is bigger than the wheel was on the old car. And actually Haggerty Haggerty actually brought out a 67 GT 500 from there that they have in their collection. And I uh, got to go for a rut and drive with uh, Jonathan Klinger from Haggerty in the 67. And <clears throat> man, you know, it was, it was officially rated back then. You know, it was a, a 428 cubic inch V8. It was officially rated at 335 horsepower, but, Made you know, more. It, no, it it was that was the gross horsepower. That was the oh, SA okay. gross. So the real horsepower was probably closer to under three hundred, um, which you know for the time was a lot, but nothing compared to today. And you know this this car, you you get it, it has this ginormous wood rim steering wheel uh, with real a really skinny rim, and you know the brakes. You step on the brakes, and it's like you're halfway through the pedal travel before you actually get any braking force with this thing. It's just it was crazy to drive. And were, and were they were they drums all four? All uh, no, it had had discs on the front, drums on the rear. Okay, all right. So well, that's so, all right. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, this, you know, these were the first Mustangs that had uh, front disc brakes. Uh, you know, there were there were uh, you know regular Mustangs that still had front drums back in those days. Um, but you know, it was it's clearly the kind of car that you would not want to take this thing racing. You know, it's you know it's purely a cruiser. But the the new car, I mean, you could you could do whatever you want with it. You can race it. You can uh, take it to track days, or just drive it around. And you know, it's a, it's a very pleasant car to drive, and you know, just and makes an amazing sound. Not quite as amazing as a GT three fifty with its flat plane crank, but still very impressive car. Hundred thousand dollar Mustang, though. Like, I, yeah, I guess. All right, I can but see it. it but it's it's a Shelby. That's right. that's why that's why you pay you customers will pay for the Shelby Dane. That guy has to pay me to put his name on my stuff, but <laughs> uh, he's a charlatan. Um, I'm sure they have all sorts of special editions planned, limited uh, production probably. runs and such. Oh yeah, uh, well for the GT500, um, actually not. But yeah, I mean, one of the things they've always done with Mustang is have various special editions, and there there is other stuff coming that uh, we can't talk about yet. Um, but, uh, the, you know, the GT 500, um, you know, I think this, this will probably go for a couple of years. They'll build this for a couple of years, um, and then move on to something else. Ford's actually had so, a pretty big week cause they had the Bronco that they yeah. are talking about as yeah. well. The Bronco R. 
yeah, they they revealed the the logo for the new Bronco, which is going to be the 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 vehicle is going to be unveiled next spring, and then this afternoon they revealed uh, photos of the Bronco R, which is an off road racing variant that uh, has the same basic shape as the the production Bronco, but I don't think it actually shares anything with the with the Bronco that you'll be able to buy next spring. Well, that's too bad. <laughs> No, yeah. maybe it has the same Fox shocks. Let's let's see what uh, happens. Yeah, you'll probably be able to get a version of it with Fox shocks, you know, kind of a Raptor Bronco. Yeah, why exactly. not? Um, Perfect. You could call it a Bronco. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, I, you know, I, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to mull the fact that, like, the Mustang was always sort of like a cheap, fast car, you know, it, uh, an economy car with just the, the bigger engine stuffed into it from one of the larger models. And it's not that anymore and it hasn't been that for since the S197 and that's okay but it's really it, the the Shelbys have sort of become this real high end not not what the Mustang started out as these are actual these are sports cuz these are 911 competitors these are I, I i'm i'm assuming that somebody looking at the GT500 might also consider a Corvette uh, a Corvette, yes. I, I don't think you find too many GT500 customers cross shopping uh, a 911. I would Even- absolutely cross shop a 911 <laughs> and a GT350 I, because their their performance envelope is really really similar. Yeah, G, GT350, absolutely. Uh, yeah. GT, GT500, no. Right. It's, yeah. It's no, it's it's true. really aimed at a very different kind of audience. But you know, it was, it was interesting. Um, you know, somebody from Ford Marketing. Uh, explained to me a few years back, back in 2007, when they relaunched the GT500 on the S197 platform, uh, you know, the previous generation, the SN95 uh, high perform, you know, supercharged Mustangs and high performance Mustangs were badged as SVT Cobras. And the the new one was supposed to be called the SVT Cobra, but um, they ended up doing a deal with Shelby to license the name. And the reason why is with uh, on the Cobras, you know, when they when they sold it as a Cobra, they only got about uh, they found they were only getting about a hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars of extra profit margin per vehicle relative to a regular GT. You know, obviously the price was higher, but the the total profit margin was only marginally higher than on the on the G on a Mustang GT. But they found that when you put a Shelby badge on it, there were customers that were willing to pay a $10,000 premium for that Shelby badge. And so, you know, the, the margins on those cars grew substantially, which is why they still build Shelby's today. You know, even though a chunk of that, that extra profit goes back to Shelby American, um, you know, that's, it's still a much more profitable car for Ford to build. And that's part of why they can still get, you know, still get around to building Mustangs today. Yeah. Well, and, and I guess to be fair to, Ford doesn't offer anything that's like a Corvette. So it's yeah. it's okay that they offer their own sort of flavor of extreme performance um car on the platform that they've got. So Right. That makes sense. Well, all right, do we want to wrap up with what's this something that's much more efficient? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh you had mentioned that pricing for the 2020 Mini E is out and it's not that expensive. It also doesn't go that far, but Yeah, um, I mean for 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 a Mini, I mean, you know, Minis have have tipped, you know, since they brought many back in the early 2000s, they've typically been on the high end of the the price scale, you know, for small cars. 
Um, and in fact, you know, some of them, you know, when you get into a John Cooper works or, you know, some of these other uh, high, high end editions, you know, they can get pretty expensive. But the the Mini E is starting at just just under just shy of thirty thousand uh, dollars, which is which is pretty reasonable until you look at how far it can go. How far can it go? Uh, about one hundred and fourteen miles. So, but again, though, let's temper this with our earlier discussion, right? Uh, this is a full electric; it's not a hybrid. But it's, yeah, it's, it is a battery electric. It's it's using a lot of the hardware from the i three. So it's it's got uh, you know a lot of the the same motor technology and, and battery technology that's in the i three, but it's been moved the the motor's been moved to the front instead of the back, so it's a front wheel drive. Yeah, but it's got more than enough for pretty much I would say ninety percent eight a safe eighty percent of the daily round trip commuting that happens here in the U.S. is is plenty with one hundred and fourteen miles. Yes. Yeah, no, it- it it is, you know, and you know, depending on where you live, what your lifestyle is, you know, it could be a perfectly perfectly adequate car, and it's got all the you know got all the attributes that you know any the regular mini hardtop has, you know, it's it's compact, fun to drive, it's kind of cute looking. I think I think it needs the range extender like Rebecca had with the uh, the i three. The- <laughs> well, I'd I'd rather. I mean, my gosh, that was just miserable. Well, pa- packaging that into the mini though would be a problem. <laughs> I, I, th- I like it better than the regular Mini, quite honestly, because I th- feel like it's not trying to recreate something so much as it's got its own personality. You know, the wheels are cool. The details are cool because it's it's a very different model. Mm. Yeah. You know, and back in uh, 2008, you know, I drove the when they had the original Mini E, you know, before they did the, the i3, you know, in the, in the lead up to launching, you know, BMW's electric vehicles. They went through a couple of stages of this this pilot program, starting with the the Mini E. They built this fleet of I think about six hundred Mini E's that were converted Minis, um, and you know they leased them out to people for a couple of years to learn more about how people use electric vehicles. And then you know they replaced those with the the Active E, which was based on the uh, the two series um, or the the one the one series the one series still at that time. Uh, so they did an electric conversion of the one series and then they, they then they brought out the i3 um you know but the i drove that mini that original mini e and it was it was a hoot to drive yeah i drove it briefly too because when i got in it i was at some kind of event and when i got in it it had like 12 miles of range and i didn't know where i was <laughs> and i was like no thank you <laughs> so it was brief but i actually had a mini i I had one of the first Mini Cooper S's uh, that when they came back to the States and they are, they're just, they're just so much fun to drive. And I think, you know, the, you always, it always gets back to your comfort level with the range anxiety. Do you have a place to, to charge it easily? How fast does it charge? All those things, those are all barriers that I think we're starting to overcome as more electric vehicles come on the road, as people become more familiar with it, as the neighborhood effect takes takes effect, uh, you know, where you it's not this strange thing anymore. It's something that, you know, your next door neighbor has. So it's yeah. it is too bad that there isn't more more range for sure. But, you know, as Dan said, it's not really necessary. Well, and, you know, I think, you know, in this case, you know, because there's a small car, it was just a matter, you know, that's as much battery as they could package into this thing sure. right now. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's got 181 horsepower, 199 foot pounds of torque. 
Um, oh, it's a so, Cooper S. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, it is yeah. literally. I mean, it's actually the, the Mini Cooper SE right. is, is what oh, it's okay. batched yeah. as. So it's you know it's the Cooper S. You know, it's similar similar output to the Cooper the standard Cooper S. You know, it's equipped. You know, got roughly the same equipment as the as the Cooper S. It's just an electric version. Basically, the only thing you're giving up with this one from a relative to a Cooper S is the distance you can drive. Uh, you know, so it's, it's limited to that, you know, because that 33 and a half kilowatt hour battery, you're limited to about 114 miles. But other than that, it'll be just like driving a Cooper S. Well, let me make some wild assumptions. Uh, so minis tend to be popular in uh, areas where in urban areas, you know, uh, or where mm-hmm. people are commuting into cities. So, uh, does that does that bode well as we build out charging infrastructure that cities are going to get uh, more more charging infrastructure faster if they don't already have it? Like maybe maybe it's not so much of an issue to take the mini into the office and plug it in all day while you're in the city, and then uh, you've got you know you've, you've boosted the range and apparently you can fast charge this on on DC fast charge so up to fifty kilowatts. So yeah, so you know it's about the same fast charging as as most other lower end uh, EVs. So yeah, I mean you can you can put eighty percent of the charge back in about a half an hour from it, what they say. It's still going to yeah. be. It's more of a suburban commuter solution though. So the commute from the suburbs. Into the city. So, or suburb to suburb. Or suburb to suburb. But, you know, like yeah. I'm picturing, you know, like in the Boston area, uh, you know, driving in from one of the suburbs into the city, going to work in there, turning around and coming back to your garage or, you know, or your house where you can. Charge. Or, you know, if you have if you have yeah. workplace charging, exactly. you know, you can use you can use that. That'll work for right. you. Right. I mean, it's um, still the multifamily. The multifamily solution is not out there yet. Like, what do you do with people that live in apartments? Right. Well, what you do is you get an extension cord. Yeah. (laughs) And you go over to the nearest um, uh, streetlight and you you take your screwdriver and you open up the bottom of that. Right. And there'll be there'll be wires in there. Well, you know, just take one hand very carefully and unwrap the wire and wrap it around (laughs) one prong. And yeah, (laughs) I mean, the, the terrible thing is that, you know, in many cities, including Boston, they've taken out all the meters Right. And they, yeah. they they do these centralized parking areas, but those meters potentially could have had charging stations, could have been, you know, charging stations right there. Well, and what they're starting to do now is, you know, they're looking at smart poles, uh, like the light poles and utility poles. Right. Smart and poles in Boston. Smart equi- poles. Equipping, <laughs> equipping those with um, charging plugs and, you know, various other equipment. You know, so there, there's a bunch of companies and this, this is one of the reports that, uh, my company's uh, recently done is, is or is doing working on somebody one of our analysts is working on right now is on smart poles you know looking at the market for those um and you know so they're you know they're equipping them with um you know with radios you know for vehicle to infrastructure communications putting sensors on them putting uh charging plugs in them you know so that you can have you know more uh more street you know charging uh with street level parking uh, in cities. I, I think it's going to come and we're going to see it in the next three years. It's going to be a lot easier to charge your car no matter where you go. Oh yeah, hopefully. absolutely. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. I'm going to go with, I'd, I'd like that opportunity so I can test more cars. I don't have workplace charging well, yet. So, you know, one, one of, one of the things that, um, you know, Ford announced, uh, was it last week, I guess, or the week before, um, you know, is an update 
uh, for their Ford Pass system, you know, because they've got an EV that's going to be unveiled in a, what, a week and a half in Los Angeles. And um, as part of their rolling out of new electric vehicles, including this EV, the electric F-150 uh, and an electric version of the transit van, uh, they in within Ford Pass, they are doing deals with these various charging network providers like Electrify America and Green Lots and, and others. Today, you know, if you own an EV, you've got to have, you know, a bunch of different apps on your phone, you know, depending on where you're going, uh, you know, and you sign up for accounts with these different charging network providers. Um, and, you know, they all have different rates and everything. And it's, it's just kind of a hassle. Um, what they're doing is Ford is aggregating all that within the Ford Pass app so that um, you just log into each of the, you log into each of them. You'll, you'll have access to each of these uh, different charging networks through one interface and you can pay for it all through that one interface and, you know, just connect your, uh, your credit card to it and, and pay for your charging that way. And so they're trying to simplify that. And, you know, when they, when they launch their EV, they're going to have access, owners will have access to a network of over 35,000 charging stations at 20,000 locations across the United, across us and Canada. So See, that's a it's good getting idea. better. Yeah. It's getting better yeah. every day. That's awesome. It's getting better. Yeah. All right. But that's podcast. We're, we're done. All right. Oh, we did have a question. Actually, we had a, we had one oh. question from Twitter. I'm, we're not going to be helpful for this guy, but uh, he uh, it, it's Rick, Rick Thwet. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Rick. Rick says he just bought a 25-year-old Suzuki Joy Pop key van for his first project car, and he's asking if we have any advice. And um, Not to buy uh, it. Would, oh, too I, late. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It looks good in pictures. And, and key cars I, are now really popular in the U.S. because they're over 25 years old, the vans. Yeah. Um, I, I, I would reach out to Mike Austin at Hemmings or uh, Chris Pockert. Uh, both of whom own uh, various K cars. Oh, uh, Mike, Mike, Mike has a Honda Beat, um, you know, so he could probably give you some hints as to what to do. And the, you know what? Actually, uh, the there were a bunch of of uh, these kind of vans at the Radwood in Boston, and I think they they regularly show up to Radwood shows. So, uh, looking around at at who's involved with Radwood, uh, will probably get you some names too. I, I honestly, I can't imagine that parts. And and support are actually that difficult. It's a Suzuki, so it's Suzuki pieces. Um, the stuff that's Japan specific is going to be. Yeah, and you know, there, there's there's enough of these things. You know, these various key cars showing up. You know, across the United States now. Yeah, you know, because because of the fact that once they're over 25 years old, you don't have to federalize them. Um, th- you know, there's enough of these various different from different manufacturers, and you know. Many of them are Suzuki's. You know, they may not be the vans, but they, I think they all pretty much have the same powertrains in them. Yeah. Uh, the same 60, 660cc uh, powertrain engines in there. So, um, you know, look around and you can definitely find help. Yeah, you're, you're gonna, you should get help. Get, yeah, you're, get yeah. help. <laughs> you're gonna need it. You're gonna need it. <laughs> all right, that's it. That's a podcast. We'll catch everyone next week. All right, bye. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.